This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Usually, I mean, we're meyachet this for, speak about uh, Godel, whose yard size is going to be in the next month. And the one that I would, that it, I would want to speak about is an incredible, a very, very unusual person, as somebody who um, I guess in many ways is, is an extremely unusual Balshita, and that was the Alta Navardic. First, um, we always try to uh, say where I got the information from, because um, there's, there's a lot of people feel no need to find, no need to verify or chlalta find the cars for stories, just put stories down. The, the probably best one written about the Alta in terms of someone who A, understood some of the Shittas, B, was careful to take things with Makairis, and three, put a certain context, is Rebdov Katz in Tenua Samusa. Rebdov Katz was a Slabotka Balmusa, wasn't from the Shittas of Navardic, but was acquainted with it. Um, Rebdov Katz lived in Tel Aviv, it was Nifter 60s, and, and he was a uh, very harsher person, and he wrote about all the leading Musa figures, and his things is probably most reliable, plus he brings Makaris wherever he got his stuff from. Um, there's another, there's something called Moiris Agdoilim, which is stories about the big Bali Musa, Chaim Zaychik, who was in Avartika, and those stories are also reliable, except there's no seda to the stories, there's no, it's not in topic, not, not chronology, it's different mices, so it's hard to build a, a something out of it. And then they've put out two volumes on the Vardic, and um, by in Avartika, it's, the stories are more, with a lot more color to it, and a lot more um, passion, but certain things are omitted and so on, but the one, I think, the Tua Samusa is probably the best overall, um, and then s- uh, some small things have been written here and there. The, um, I personally knew the daughter of the Alta Navardic. Um, she lived underneath my father-in-law's house. Her name was Rebbe Zinyafin. She was his youngest daughter from his second wife, and um, I knew her. I knew the f- some of the families. So that's the sum total of the Makairis. Um, he was born in 1848 in Lita, and his father was a, uh, a big, a big Talmud Chacham, very, very um, strict person, very, very a person who was kol kulei avoda, tarin avoda, nothing else. He himself was a very wild person as a young person, and possibly those tchunis kept on, you know, kept him in his old age also. Extremely smart, very, very wild. He tamed down and began to sit and learn. And he sat and learned. It was a year to Talmud Chacham. He got married at a young age. And he, he, when he got engaged, he made up with his father-in-law that he would not have to work. His father-in-law would work and support him. He, he wanted to sit and learn. His father-in-law passed away between when he got engaged to when he got married. And now, not only do he have to support a wife, he had to support, take over the business, father had a business, to take over the business and support um, the rest of the family. I think there were another seven, eight people in the family. And he wanted to break the shidduch. His father wouldn't let him. 
His father said, you committed yourself, no matter what. He got married, and he became a businessman, and a successful businessman. He was very good at it. He was um, a hustler, and he was bright, and worked hard. He also set aside time to learn, but he was, but, but he was mostly in the business. Somebody suggested that he go meet Rebisol Salanta. He met him once or twice. Rebisol Salanta invited him to come to his Masilza Sharmshir. He came and it affected him tremendously. At the 13th shear, he got up and he decided that's it. He's leaving everything and he's going back to sit and learn full time. And Parnassa for his family's whatever it is, it is. Rebisol Salanta tried to dissuade him. He didn't think that such an extreme move um, was right. His father was very upset. He felt that that was kind of a very positive move. It wasn't uh, thought out, it wasn't Yasha's, it wasn't right. Um, he decided he would do one more business deal and with that he would leave business. And as he went to do the deal, he said to himself, I don't understand. If I'm supposed to sit and learning, what am I doing in business? And he dropped it on the spot and, and he went to Kovna, which was, it had, Rabbi Saul Salanta had established a Kailu, Kovna Kailu, and Rabbi Saul Salanta, and, and he went to learn there. He left his wife behind um, with a child already. He um, left behind uh, his family, everything and sat and learned. He uh, didn't support his wife and he w didn't move her to Kavna either. He was extremely... Um, he, 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 he decided he wants to put himself completely learning and that's what he did. And there were a lot of Ikuchim. Rabbi Tzalablaza was there, was upset, he held it's not right and he fought, he held his own and that was part of the things that he fought about. At some point later, he brought his wife and child to Kavna. He had another two children with her. And then um, his wife died as she was giving birth to the third child. It, something changed in him. He gave up his three kids basically to other families to raise them one to a sister, one to someone else, one, one to another person and he decided to shut himself away from the world and be completely between himself and Kaddish Baruch Hu. He moved into, there was a, a Yid at Tzaddik his name was Shloyma, Reb Shloyma the Tinsmith he gave him a room in his house he, he, the, the back of the room opened up into the courtyard so he made a Tnai they made a wall around between his door and the courtyard. So it was a private yard. Nobody else could walk in. He locked the front door, the door between him and the rest of the house. Nobody could walk in. He had like two bells with a hole in the wall, like a little dumbwaiter. And whenever he wanted something, he would put a note there, ring the bell. They would come and pick up the note. They would bring him what he wanted, ring the bell, and he would pick it up. He wanted to have no contact with anybody for, he wanted, he planned it for seven years. It created a tremendous stir. Um, people were uh, 
some people were very, very upset. Some people made fun of it. Rabbi Yitzchak he was the Rav and Kovna, and Rabbi Yitzchak was the God Lador, sent him a few times his personal shamash to tell him that it's wrong, he needs to stop it, he needs to drop it, and um, he uh, refused. The Maskilim made tremendous fun of it. The man with the two holes, he had a hole for fleshiks and milchiks, and everything about it pointed to what was what they said was wrong with Musser and Frumkite. Here you have a person who threw his family away, made himself into into some sort of crackpot with this big wall around his room, and so on and so forth. Um, if a year and a half into his bedidas, someone the, the, the mas, somebody, the, well, it seemed the Maskilim tried to put a package of counterfeit notes, money into his apartment. They threw some counterfeit coin, uh, money into his place, and they called the police. And it was a nace that he wasn't, they didn't find it, whatever. And he, so he sort of, he sort of made it, he started going out, but not for much. He wouldn't come to shul, he wouldn't come there. He, he, did, he took the wall down maybe, but he still was a parish. But he started seeing Anashim Doilim, and he started seeing the Alta of Kelm. The Alta of Kelm um, was, had, had, for two years, he used to visit him regularly, and the Alta would fight with him about his derech. He said, the derech is wrong, this, this whole thing of precious is not right, the world needs today people that will go out, and um, and be Marbet's Torah. And finally, when he decided the altar was right, he picked himself up and never looked back again. And he and he made a hundred eighty degree turn. And it's incredible. His part of his personality was that once something is emis, then nothing stood in his way. He he never made gradual changes. He changed on a dime. They say that the Alta Kelm told Nova that Rabbi Saul Salanta once met a parish. In Europe, in Lita, especially in those days, Prushim were, it was a common religious phenomenon. A person closed off of the world was only Dovakakach Barbu. So the Alta told him, so Rabbi Saul Salanta told his parish, You spend your day milking Malachim? What are you doing up there? Like, 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 like what's. And they told Rabbi Saul Salanta that somebody is at Sadik Nista. He said, in our generation, I don't understand how a nista can be a tzaddik. There's so much that needs to be done. What's he doing there? And at some point, he was Moedal Emes, and he dropped it. And as radical as he was in what he had done until now with his precious, he now um, began to go out. There's a piece missing here that I didn't say yet. He he um, he stayed in his house of of Reb Shlomo the, the, the tinsmith, and he was a very big tzaddik. and he had one daughter who shidduchim wasn't going so well. She got older, a little older, and finally she became engaged. And a month or so before he was she was supposed to get married, the chassan dropped the shidduch, and they were devastated. And uh, Rabbi Yosef uh, Yezel was his name. Rabbi Yosef Yezel is a little horowitz. Rabbi Yosef Yezel heard them crying and screaming. Yes, what happened? They told him. 
he said, I owe a tremendous amount of Hakar Zatoyf, I will marry her. And he gave it to Kiaskaf, which is like a Shavuah, he gave a handshake. It made a tremendous rash. Um, first of all, people felt that there was something unseemly about it. People would say that they had been meeting all the time because he lived in the house. And people felt she was way beneath his station. She was a simple girl from a simple home. He was a, 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 a big, a very harsh person, whether he agreed or disagreed. He was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. He was a giant. And he said, no, this is what he promised. And he married her. But the night was, he would never support her. He would be free to do what he felt was right. And he would do precious, not as precious, but he basically spent most of his life, what was left of his life, he spent um, going from place to place making yeshivas. So, in the 80s or so, was when he, he had this change, in the mid-80s, uh, 1880s, he had this change of heart, and, re- and said, now is the time to go out and to do. And he began going all over Lita, making yeshivas. Most yeshivas he made were for younger kids, or whatever, and he went place to place, building, doing, and then finally, those yeshivas, he decided the Talmidim that had learned in the younger yeshivas needed a big yeshiva, and he made a yeshiva in the Varduk, um, for them. He still hadn't brought his wife, he was living there, and his wife still lived in Kavna. And it wasn't until later that he um, brought her over. It was incredible um, hanhagis, very unusual hanhagis. He made yeshivas, and he had his own derech. We'll talk about the derech soon. Incredibly demanding derech. He made yeshivas all over Lithuania, Russia, and at his heyday, he had 60, 70 yeshivas at least. And they were they were they were very different than your typical yeshivas. Um, many of the gedolim that we know today. They, they would come to a town. People, st- you have to understand, this was a period of time when Yiddishkeit was going downhill. People stopped sending kids to yeshivas. They, they didn't want them to go on They were becoming socialists and communists and Zionists and everything else under the sun. They would go into a town. And part of their hugger, and we'll talk a little bit more about it, was um, they would go into a town. How did they make a yeshiva? They would take out a map of uh, Lithuania and Russia and Baruch Hashem there's plenty of place no lack of place in Russia and Lithuania they would stick a pin in the pin would land on I don't know, Bursk, Bryarsk so they say, oh wow Bryarsk really needs a yeshiva so you be the Rosh Yeshiva and you be the Mashkiach and they would send them off they would supply them sometimes with a coat and sometimes, and they would especially tell them, since you're having, you're making a yeshiva, you need a good supply. You should learn Shah B'tochon two or three times over before you go. I'm serious. That, that was the yeshiva. They would come to town. They would come into the shul. And after Shachas, they would give a clap. We, we, we're pleased to announce that the yeshiva of, of Nevadic of Bjorsk has just been founded. And, you know, we're learning here. They would go to the street and they would pick up kids, anybody, anybody that they could, that they could schlep in, they schlepped in. It made no difference who, what, when. Um, and they would make a yeshiva. It came lunchtime or supper time. Then one of the two would go to the houses and ask if there's any leftover food and give it out. That was yeshiva. Rebshul Birnbaum, Rebshul Brudny, all of them came from that. 
they, they were like the equivalent of Chabad bringing people into the Tshuva movement. They were the ones who brought kids off the street, and they would uh, literally tear them away. They they would develop them as Bnei Torah, and then if they if they became you know Chashuv, they would go on to other yeshivas. This was all over Europe. Um, they even some Chassidusha would send there because they felt that it was safe, at least you could keep the kid from. Uh, I once spoke to a person who was a bit chassidish, a person who didn't have any much kind words for the Litvish yeshiva world, but he told me about himself. He said if not for Nevadic in his town, he would be a shegetz. He said the Rebbe, with all due respect, had no yeshiva, didn't care to have a yeshiva, and Levada came in, they made one of these crazy yeshivas, they schlepped him in, they made him into a, a, a bentayra, into something, and he moved on in life. That was, that was the, the yeshivas. The Anhagas were incredible, and we'll speak more about the shittas and the derech, and we'll talk about it. Um, this went on until World War I. We think of World War II, we, we, we talk a lot about the, the Holocaust and everything. World War I was in terms of the Tkufa was incredibly horrendous. It was anarchy. What happened was the Germans and Russians were fighting, but then the Russian, the Russian, Russia disintegrated. It, the communists didn't take over right away. There were, there, was a, there were years and years of fighting of different groups, communists and anti-communists and pro-Tsarists and anarchists and everything. The only Tsar Shava between all the groups was that they would make programs on Jews. That was the only Tzad HaShavah. Whether you were pro-communist or anti-communist, the Jew was killed. And, and they killed out hundreds of thousands of people in starvation and, and everything. And they were active in the war years. They were not Nevardic. He said, even though many of the Jews in Lithuania, my, I know from my father, they, they were hoping Germany would take over because Germany was light years ahead of Russia in terms of civilization and Menschlichkeit and treating Jews. He was very scared of German Haskalah, and he kept on going behind wherever Russia was. He ended up in World War I with his Talmidim in Kiev, in Ukraine. That became the center. Kiev, for the first few years of the war, Ukraine was actually quite peaceful, and then it, it was Bedlam. He finally, in 1920, there was a big typh typhoid uh, uh, epidemic. And he, um, he he refused to allow anyone to treat his Talmidim except for himself. He personally would take them and wash them and clean them. Everything he felt nobody else could do it. He was a man in the 70s, close to 70, and he died in that in that epidemic. Um, he was Nifter in 1920, about. Um, in 1965, the um, the government decided they were going to build a park on the base of they allowed people to take out bodies, and his body was removed and brought to Haram Luchas, and it is in Haram Luchas today. That was the Alton Vardik. His active years were basically from 1985 till 1920. That was the, the Tkufa, maybe 1990, that was the Tkufa of his active life. I want to talk a little bit about Ashitas and Drachim, because that was the very incredible part. He was he was turned on by Rishol Salanta's Musa. And the understanding yourself and knowing whether or not you're, you're genuine is the most important thing. But he was an extremist. 
um, he knew no quarter. Everything and anything until the extreme. So, he would, Lemashal, um, Davring, in most yeshivas was galassen. There was a certain, especially the Litvish mindset, was very, very michusa, um, gentle, thoughtful, deliberate. In here, in 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 the Vardic, it was a fire. It, it, it was the, the screaming and yelling and and milling and running. He 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 felt it was fake. He said, Kelm was the Musa that believed most strongly in discipline and order and structure. He said if he was able to, he would take a sledgehammer, walk into the Kelm-based Medrash, and destroy every piece of furniture in its place. He felt it was, it was th- that type of, of, um, that type of Mahalach was not, you would fool yourself. So, scream, his, the Musa Shmuzen, they were screaming and yelling and, and, and people crying. It, it was extremely, I remember um, in Yerushalayim, he had a Talmud Rebbe in Brook, who was a very gentle, big tzaddik. He had a, he had the yeshiva with Torres Moshe, is Nevardik, that where Torres Moshe used to be, on Shmuel Novi, those who know, that was the building that he built. And Elul, it was, uh, it was sort of attractive, people would come here, this Musash Muzen. He would speak Pashal Shudis, and the Musash Muzen had two halves to it. There was like a regular Musash and then they would close the lights, it was like after this man already, and he would do something called his iris, where he would speak um, much more like intimate, like it wasn't a formal schmooze, talking to yourself, and being sort of very open with yourself, he would be talking to himself and to everybody else, and you would build up to a pitch and say, so we're doomed and, and we're helpless, and the only thing you do is scream at our lungs, Hashiveinu Hashem Elecha. And everybody would yell out Hashiveinu. That was, that was the Nusach of Nevarik. Completely getting things fired up with an extraordinary uh, rischa. And, and that was seen as being something that was at least had a havamid of being genuine. So the first one was the level of, of, of his spilus and his iris and so on. The second thing was he innovated all sorts of interesting things. In, in, in most of the yeshivas they had vadim and chaburis. What he had over here was something called the burj, the burs, which means a stock market, a market place. And once a day there would be like this open house kind of where people would talk to each other about Yerushalayim. Some would come and say something like, you know, I need an Eitzah for Gaiva. I'm willing to pay you two Eitzahs that I picked up for us mother if you give me one Eitzah for Gaiva. And, or you would pick up somebody and say, I think you're having real problems with your Yetzirah for COVID. Let me give you Musa. Or vice versa. A person would come to somebody else and say, and, and it, was, it was sort of his he said, I don't understand something. In business, you're all day long looking for Eitzes. Why, why you're Shemaim, nobody looks for Eitzes? And that was very much part of, of, of what Yeshiva was like. Hefkeris. In other words, people possessiveness was seen to be a terribly bad mida. And um, so people... If you had a pair of shoes, somebody else would take it. If, if, if you had a new jacket, somebody else would borrow it. There was a complete sense of no 
possessiveness, hefkeris. You know, it, it, nothing is is mine. Nothing is this. Nothing is that. And and that was where something dirty. The the, the Alta himself was once sitting together with Gedolei Olam at a, at a table, and he felt a little bit. I guess there would be mechabedim or something. So one person said it. Was saying a shikotayin. Up is that he looked at his plate and he says, "Wow." The food is really good here, and it, it was it was demeaning, and he did it because he, he wanted to be totally, totally. It, it, that was the midah, to be completely oblivious. They worked on something called amitzus, and this is probably the midah they most famous for, and it stood them instead. He said, you know, our biggest yitzharah, and in Europe it was, is we are constantly worried about how other people, what other people care, what other people think about us. That was like, it was always about, you know, does it look nice, does it look right? And, and he would give Misholem situations, real life situations, where people do what's wrong because they want other people to look at them in a certain way, Chashev. And, and his, 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 one of the Ica trainings of something called Amitzus, which means courage, or translated in, in, the, in, in colloquial, don't give a damn about what the world thinks about you. And they would do crazy things so that people, they would go into, 30 of them would show up at a very wealthy man's house and say, we want to have mincha here. And they would have an avarik mincha with screaming and yelling and this and that. <laughs> and and it, was, it was sort of a, a um, you know, or they would go into the famous stories of buying nails. In, in, in People don't understand a, um, a drugstore in, in, in Europe was a very chashev place, and it was look very chashev, and you know he would have a disaster picture. It was very chashev, and they'd walk in and ask for this, for that. It, they, they did everything so that people could not, they couldn't care less about what people think about them. Um, I'll, there was somebody who had a yeshiva mentioned later, uh, Reb Gershon Liebman. He was one of the, probably the only one who, who reestablished yeshiva that in Paris. And a Talmud of his was a Chavrusa in the mirror. He told me like two stories about how Reb Gershon was oblivious to what people thought about him. He said, um, one, he, he would he had a kvias once a day. He would read the the the, Modia, the Hebrew newspaper from so He would get it and he would read it in his room. He said you could walk into his room anytime without knocking. If he was reading the newspaper, he didn't. There was no like little little kind of pull, like spasnish, maybe I shouldn't. I know something, I could probably here and I'm reading it. So, so I must think that it's good. So why do I care what somebody else thinks? Why is somebody else's thinking about me that maybe it's Chashev, not that Chashev? Why does it make a difference? It makes no difference. He had no sense of having any type of discomfort with the other person around him. And he said they were once in Paris, in the Grand Central Station, the train station. Paris is not like New York, where you have all sorts of, you know, where, where you know, sort of friendly to Jews. Is that Paris is very, very not uh, friendly to Jews. He had to have mincha, so he stood in the middle and davened mincha. And he said, with all the angry stares and all the this, all that, he couldn't care less. It didn't mean a thing to him. That was, that was him. And this was a Talmud of the Alta. The Alta couldn't care less, and that was he built a Talmudim to work on it. That, that, you know, it makes no difference. They worked on Bitochen in crazy ways. 
the, the Alter himself never knew where anything would come from. And he, 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 he funded hundreds of yeshivas. I mean, he had yeshivas all over. And, and he would never, ever, ever think twice where it's coming from. What did he say something? Akash Baruch gives, Akash Baruch gives. And they'd have crazy stories where the last minute, this boy that I'm talking about, that I told you about my Chavrusa, he said they would go on three-day hikes without taking along anything. Because of Bitochen, to learn Bitochen. And the Alton Vadik said, if somebody learns Bitochen, but hedges his bets, it's like learning how to swim and you're tied still to the, to, to the shore. You'll never learn how to swim that way. You have to plunge in and believe in Munich Leima. Um, so Bitochen was an extremely important. Being choshed yourself on your midas. In other words, always assuming that you're lying to yourself. And midas emes was an extraordinary... And he himself wouldn't take any money for his family to live on, when he was, even though he was working for the yeshiva. And when the yeshiva had a... When the yeshiva... When they had the chluk for the big building, he wouldn't let his family attend the chluk he said, it's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't share with you. It's the yeshiva. So why are you coming? Just because your family it doesn't belong to the family. It belongs to the yeshiva and that's it. And his own son's wedding, he, he, he looked like one of the participants. He ref- it's a daughter's wedding from Yafens. And, and his, his extraordinary hugger of always thinking, you know, of, of, of going to an extreme to avoid getting any benefit from anything or anywhere, anywhere. That was, those were some of his primary shittas in, in Anhaga. It caused, there were, there were a lot of people that were antagonistic to him. They felt, you can't act crazy like that. It's extreme, and so on. But even the people who were against him had phenomenal derechats for him. In other words, everyone respected him as being a big person and a true person. And even people that he fought against, they would sometimes go and invade a shul, take over the shul for yeshiva, and and <laughs> it, it was it was not it, you know I mean they felt it was theirs, they felt whatever it was, but people had begrudging respect because the man was cool and shemayim. He never he he died. He was about seventy or so. He never wore a coat. He never he ran. He he was always like a young person, you know, going place place. They would, wherever they traveled, they had no idea where they had money before. They would just they would just go. If they had to walk, they would walk there. They could walk tens of miles, and then somebody would give them a ride. They would go onto a train, and when the conductor came, they would jump to the second train. And no, no, no shaykhs with, with any, with any, with any uh, of of of, of um, what you would call normalcy. I, I want to tell you, it's his yeshiva, he built his yeshivas where he wasn't really the Rosh Hashiva in a certain sense. He didn't take any Rosh Hashivas. I think he was afraid of having, of overshadowing the Musa with learning. He didn't, he felt very strongly that this is the only thing that will save Kali Yisrael, is Musa and learning it with such intensity and no, n- no concessions of, of, of Midas Amis. So he created a yeshiva, so it, the, every yeshiva was like two older bachim who were strong by the Musa were the heads of it. They were the, the, the Rosh Hashivas, the Mashkir. They would have an older young man saying a Chabura, but no Rosh Hashivas. Um, and they would come together, the heads of the yeshivas would come together once a year. They would have an Asifa, 
and it was very democratic. They would vote on issues, and the altar didn't. The altar would not mix in if the Rav Tzibur wanted it one way or another way. That's how it go. And they made Takanis. He would work with Yechidim. He would go around at this Asif and pick out this person, this person, the other person. Talk to them. Some people give Musa to, some people Chizik to. But but it was he wanted it. It's not me. It's the yeshivas and the derech. He, I mean, we talk about a person who was, you know, selfless. Probably the two most difficult things we talked about: leaving his wife and children, giving his children away for the, you know, basically for being raised by others. His son-in-law, Reb Chaim Shlavitz's father, was a tremendous talmud chacham shel Zbal Masbir. He was Rosh Hashiva in 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 Nevada. He took him to be the Rosh Hashiva. He was more. He wasn't such a Musa person, um, Reb Alta. Alta. And he um, and twice he overran. They would after his share. They would sit. And they would talk and learning. And Musa said it was should be afterwards. And the the talking and learning. Flow, flowed over into Musa Seder. The first time it happened, the altar warned him that it should never happen again. The second time it happened, the altar threw him out and never to see him again. Threw him out and threw something at him, tossed at something and threw it out. And, and he was never, and, and he would never ever, it, it had anything to do with him again. In, incredible um, He had a son who was brilliant and was involved in the yeshiva and they had some disagreement. He banished his son from the yeshiva and that was it. To him, this is the fire that will survive and he's, 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 this is the parashemen and nothing else is, he can't let any personal gear, no personal gear touch it. it, it it's called a nefesh that we have no shaykhist understanding. In, the, in those years during World War One, and that terrible tkufa this yeshiva survived in ways that are unthinkable. They never had what to eat. They were being persecuted. They were running from place to place. And you couldn't stop them. They would take the Bahrim. I mean, they would cross over the borders here, there, the other place. They would be caught. They'd be arrested. They'd be put up to be shot. And they were always calm. And they would ask them, where, where are your passports? They would put themselves in charge. We're, I'm serious. That, 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 was, that was the, and and you know they would they would beat them up and then they let them go or whatever. The, the stories are just incredible stories. They wouldn't have to eat for days and then somebody would somehow come along and 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 bring them food. Um, it it was an unusual survival for unusual times. Um, and it's the only way to explain it. That, that kept that was the fire of Torah, and a lot of the people that made it to big issues and became big names started there. Um, that was uh, he was nifted in 1920. They stayed in Russia another two years. The communists had come in already at the end of World War One, 18 or so, 17, 18. Um, they they struggled for two more years on the communism with horrendous mysterious nefesh. They finally asked the Chavetz Chaim Shaila. Chavetz Chaim said they should leave Russia, and they went to Poland. And for the next 20 years, until until the end of the war, until until the beginning of war, until, until the beginning of, of World War II, they were all over Poland. Also made 70, 80 yeshivas in Poland um, with the same derech, and saved a lot of kids. A lot of kids stayed from and became yeshiva like because of of Navarik. After the war, 
very little survived of it. They had a they had Kolum named Beisaisif, the gates of the Yeshiva is called Beisaisif, um, you know, it's Israel, there's a Beisaisif, and so on. Their names, I mean, they're Kolum, they're wonderful Kermit's story, that's it. The only place that had Shaykhis was the one in France, for Gersh Liebman. His Hanhagis was still Nevada called away. His stories of Bitachin were incredible. I'll tell over a story, again, maybe it's Kedai sometime to devote uh, 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 to Rabbi Yashalim himself, because his story is incredible. This I read when he was Nifta. He arrived to America, and he at the airport, when he got off the plane, he had no money, obviously, that's, that's the Vardik, and he decided that he needs um, $50 for coffee or whatever it is. So he took a cab, he didn't know who he could go to, so he remembered, he knew Rabbi Yosef Friedensen, Rabbi Yosef Friedensen um, was the Yiddish, uh, he was Nagurus Yisrael, he was the head, he was the editor of the Yiddish newspaper. A fine Yid, a very fine Yid. So, so he, he took a cab to, to, um, to the Aguda building in Manhattan, and he would answer Mr. Friedensen for $50 from the cab. He didn't realize it was July 4th, and nobody was working anywhere. But Rabbi Yosef Friedensen had forgotten the papers he needed to work on in the office. And he made a special trip on a Sunday morning, and his cab drives up as he's getting in the building. And he asks him, and he says, Rabbi Yosef, he says, I just got off the plane, I need $50 for the cab, um, and I came to you. He said, you know, I, I was never supposed to be here, and this and that. He said, but that's what I came for. So he pulls out $100 and says, here, take. So Yosha said, no, I need $50 for you, and plus, it, you know, whatever was cost a token to Brooklyn, and I'm fine. So I'm not going to take a penny more. I took the $50 plus, plus whatever it is, and then he paid it to me at the end. That, that was not Haggis. It, it's, it was, it was inc- it not, not something that has any shaykhs to Malcolm of Teva and so on. Um, I, I want to sort of look at it, sum it up a little bit, and get a sense of, of, of that, that whole kufa and everything. It was a phenomenon that was an incredible phenomenon. And it was like a burst of light that lasted a, 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 for a tkufa, and then it was gone. I think, I, I guess, the, 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 the tkufa that it came up was a tkufa of revolutions in the world. The world was revolting. The world was changing. The world was going through incredible, incredible changes, movements, um, countries were breaking up, empires were breaking up, the Austro-Hungarian Empire broke up, communism came to the world. Um, it, it, it was incredible, it, it was a tkuf of incredibly dynamic changes. The Zellum are saying Kedusha, to people that were willing to sacrifice their lives and for the, for the for sh- and, and like the communists who knew no boundaries and were going to do something, this was the Tzadakdusha of it. I mean, this whole music of, of, of the, way, the way it went about it. It's incredible that people who went to the Vardic, there was a very famous person, who, there were people in the Vardic who went off the Derech also. Um, one of them went off the Derech in the early years of the Vardic, and the altar was so shaken, he said this was his biggest masmid, was Erlach He went home for Ben Asmanim, never came back and became a fry. And he said, there's no Eitzah. There's no way to compromise with the world today. If you leave a crack open, you're gone. The only way to do today is no pshars. But someone else, um, Netanyahu's father-in-law, who passed away recently, Ben Arzi, was an Avadik Yeshiva Bacha. 
and he came to Yisrael al das to make an avadik yeshiva. He, um, but there was nothing doing, and he, the same kaiches of, of of sort of becoming all fired up. He ended up becoming an ardent Zionist, etc. But he wrote a book at 92, 93 about the Vardik. Extremely positive. It's more like a story of somebody going to the Vardik and different people. He said that basically it's all true. He just, you know, different names. But, but it, it left an, an impression on people. It was powerful and it was emis. People, you could agree or disagree. But the Midas emis that was there was unmistaken. Um, this same boy that I learned with, he was very guy, somebody a little bit younger than me. It told me he, he had he was there in Paris for I think two years and then he came to Israel. He said he, he it was it was olam haba there. He said living with such a sharp emis was an incredible experience. And he said he would have had a nervous breakdown if he would have stayed any longer. Those were the two <laughs> observations. And, and, and there's something to it. it it's, the world can't live. It's like Rav Shimei Yechoi, when, you know, when he came out of the Meir and he said, how could people be Oisik in, in Havlil Mahaza? And, he, told him, and it, he got burnt and he told him to come back again. It, it was an incredibly illuminating uh, moment in Karsal's history. That type of kitsonius of emis and bitochen and and uh, no and selflessness. I, I don't know if the world can exist like that, but without having that as some sort of um, measuring stick, some sort of uh, way of, of of being able to see at least that there was something like that. Um, incredible was an incredible person, incredible tkufa, and it's something that whether or not. Dashkocha meant it to be the derech forever, but but it's something to be misbeinin that a person can do things. He he you know he said people can do so much more than they think they can, and he proved it. He never ever slowed down. Nothing, being sick, being cold, being hot. He was oblivious, oblivious. Nothing in the world mattered. His last year in Kibbutz, Josh, before he got sick, even his his point his theme was. To spend your life affirming the emis, to give your life away, to spend your life away affirming the emis. That's what life is about, um, and and he proved it. He proved that a person can go through life and nothing, no, no media. As a, maybe as a compliment to the story I told you about how he loved his family, how he threw his son-in-law out, how he um, threw out his son, without looking back. I want, to hear, I want to tell you a second side of his personality. This I heard from his daughter, the Rebbe's in Yafas She said that near where they lived, she was ready from the youngest, so he was home. They, were, they, were, they lived near Yeshiva. Right near where they lived, there was like a place that they had horses and buggies. And the, the, and the, um, the derech was when, when a guy would come from a long journey, he would drive his horse and buggy up to the stop and he would like bring it to a halt with a, a whip. Like, you know, he, he would come galloping in and give a big knock to the horse. That's, that's how that's it did. Her father could never look at it because of the cruelty, he, he, because Rahman is an animal. He, he was a very sensitive person, very, very, um, you know, soft. But Emmis is Emmis. And, and, and therefore, he, not one emotion of his came into play when it was Neged Emes. 
you know, this is Torah, this is the yeshiva, the yeshiva is not his, and therefore his family has no shaykhs to it. Torah has to survive, and the only way it will survive is through this. This is the only little light of emes that there is in, 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 in the world, and, and nobody, even his son, shouldn't be able <laughs> to extinguish that light. The, 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 and this is a person who is very, very gentle with Teva. Bechlal, when you read the stories, it seems like the person is like kind of very fafrum, very whatever. And the people who met him said they've never met such, such a person full of life, upbeat, cheerful, um, constantly. He, he, he was a very energetic, positive person. Um, and it was with that koach that he demanded so much. He wasn't a fakvechta person. He, he wasn't a, a depressed person. He was a person full of energy and life, and, and that's how he expressed it. Like upon him, his Yorzad is Yitzayin Kislev, and it's something that um, is, 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 a, is, a, is a Ha'ara and a very dark Kuf and Kali Yisrael's uh, history, that at least the light of it still remains to some degree. Some... Uh, 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 uh,